guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 186. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we do have a Q&A episode lined up for you. Thanks to all of the people who got involved on our recent Instagram poll and asked us a few questions. Always love when people interact with us on there over on the Bodybuilding Dietitians. And we'll get cracking into some questions today, Jack. So this first one, it says, can you build the same amount of muscle training for strength and not hypertrophy? Yeah, so I think specificity is the key word here. Mm. Ultimately, if you be more specific and dedicate your intentions and programming and recovery, etc., to a specific endeavor, then ultimately that's going to equal more success in that endeavor. And it's the same when people ask, oh, if I do running and lifting weights at the same time, like, can I optimize both or can I do both at the same time? And it's the same sort of answer there as well. Mm. If, like, sure, you can do, do both at the same time. But I think if you try and pursue a high level of both, like for example, aerobic activity can aid resistance training. But if you're trying to achieve very, very high feats in aerobic training, then I think it's ultimately going to impact on your resistance training. Mm -hmm. You can be good at both, but you're not necessarily going to be great or excellent at both. Mm. When I read this question, I almost thought of it as if someone was asking, can I run as fast as a sprinter if I'm training for marathons? And even just asking that question out loud or typing it or thinking it, you kind of have your answer. It really does come down to keep the main thing the main thing. If you really want to prioritize a certain goal, you almost have to go all in on that goal. And there's no denying that when it comes to building muscle, like, yes, you need to be strong. But I would almost say that like when I think of strength at the highest level, we're thinking of power lifters where you're performing enormous feats of strength, but for low repetitions. And, but I think the the key thing I would want to say is like, you can still get very, very strong while prioritizing hypertrophy. Mm. Like if you look at anyone with a lot of muscle, I think, and and I would look at the enhanced end, the, I would personally look into the, the natural scene because of course there's other ways of accruing a lot of muscle in, if you're not natural, But if you look at any natural bodybuilder who has a lot of muscle, they're going to be very strong as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But just not as strong as someone who is like a powerlifter. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy because when I think about it, I'm like, man, they are insanely strong. But when I look at it from that sense of like watching a powerlifter perform a 1RM, I'm like, that is a feat of strength, but that is also an enormous skill. And actually undergoing the training to be able to perform like that on the platform on that day to do that one rep max, recognize that that is also an enormous skill too. But you can be skilled in the sense of performing a 1RM, or you can also be skilled in the sense of you get strong for reps. And it just depends on your goal. But personally, I actually think if anything, it's it's almost... (laughs) Both are impressive, but almost I'm a little bit more impressed if someone is actually strong for reps. So for example, let's say that you did have a male power lifter and he could do a 1RM deadlift at three times his body weight. That is just phenomenal, right? <laughs> so like, like let's say you had a 90 kilo guy doing 270 kilos for a deadlift. That is amazing. Very few people on the planet can do that. But, Very few people can bench 100 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> but relative to your body weight, 
but that's for one rep. But then when I think about it, okay, let's say that someone else in the gym, they were performing a deadlift for two times their body weight or maybe 2.5 times their body weight, not three times their body weight, but they were performing it for consecutive reps. I look at that and I'm like, man, that is strong, but that is strong for reps or a female powerlifter who maybe can squat two or 2.5 times her body weight. That's amazing. But then when you see a chick in the gym squatting like 1.5 times her body weight for reps, you're like, freaking get it girl. Like it's, it's amazing. So both are impressive, but both, if you pursue them heavily, they are going to lead to slightly different physique outcomes. Mm. Yeah. So it depends what you're aspiring to really, because mm. I don't know this question asker might think that a 200 kilo deadlift for eight reps is really strong, which mm. it is of course, but in the powerlifting sense at a competitive level, like that's it's not the strongest thing ever. Mm. Whereas in bodybuilding, that is, that's pretty darn strong yeah. for a natural competitor to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's all relative. Yeah. To, it's all relative <laughs> to where you started, what you're comparing yourself to. But I think the main focus is just focusing on what's your rate of progression and focusing on, okay, where did I start? Where am I now? Where do I want to be? And you kind of realize that like another level, another devil <laughs> in that sense, like once you hit a certain point, like you briefly celebrate that, but then you're like, oh man, I, I need to be better. So I need to level up. <laughs> mm. uh, but Jack, to answer the question, can you grow just as much muscle training purely for strength as if you were training for hypertrophy? No. No, there's, there's your answer. All right, moving on to this next question. It says, is it normal to have less bowel movements when you lower your food intake? Yes, for a number of reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I guess superficially I'll address those reasons. So reason number one would be because your body wants to prioritize more nutrient absorption from the food itself. So it'll slow down your rate of, of absorption to, for example, maybe draw more energy from certain carbohydrate substrates like dietary fiber. So dietary fiber usually has anywhere from like one to three approximately calories per gram uh, whereas normal carbohydrates have four but maybe because of the slower digestion time your body becomes more efficient at digestion and maybe you ferment more of the dietary fiber or resistant starch and then produce more fatty acid byproducts and therefore that's more energy for your body Mm. which the body wants because you're in a dieting state so it's almost like acting against your uh, weight loss goals mm-hmm. there, unfortunately. It's like, nice try. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to fight you on this one because having energy is in my best interests for staying alive. Mm. And then the second reason which kind of ties into that is it's a natural, like the process of digestion is expends energy. So mm-hmm. by slowing it down, so reducing gastric motility, essentially we expend less energy. And mm-hmm. that's again in the body's interest to reduce as much energy expenditure as possible. Mm. So it really is a double whammy. Yeah, it is a frustrating part of metabolic adaptation, isn't Mm. it? For just less energy being dedicated to your digestive tract. And there's a few other factors I think that can tie in with it as well. You have to think Mm. if you're going- More external factors, yeah. Yeah, but, or I guess you could say internal too. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to think about it. If you're going into a calorie deficit and let's say that you are going from like, peak surplus in an improvement season down to a mini cut and you're also not abusing diet foods from the get-go you're probably consuming 
a significantly lower amount of food volume as well. So you have to think that, let's say that you slash your calories and you're consuming a thousand less calories, that's significantly less total food bulk. It's probably significantly less total fiber as well. So those things combined, if you regularly have, let's say two to three bowel motions a day and you're just going down to one, mentally that might feel a bit uncomfortable for you, but you also have to recognize too that like, hey, I'm just not going to the bathroom as frequently because there's not as much stool to pass anymore because I'm not consuming as much food. So getting your head around that, putting those two and two together. But I think another thing, Jack, that ties in with it as well is just like stress. (laughs) Stress can majorly impact our rate of gastric motility and also how frequently we go to the bathroom and our circadian rhythm too. Like I know that when you and I went through our very first competition prep and we were in uni undertaking a master's of dietetics and our whole schedule was almost... It wasn't what we would idealize, like what we have now, where we work from home, we choose our training times, we choose when we want to work, we choose when we want to go to bed and wake up and when we want to eat, everything's in our control. So our circadian rhythms and our bodies are just in this routine where everything is in routine. But if you are in a circumstance where your circadian rhythm and your routine is getting thrown a little bit out of whack. so. For example, I know that when we went through that very first prep, my sleep was just, and like it was a choice, but my sleep was completely out of whack because I was doing night shifts at the gym from like 4 p.m. until 11.30 p.m. at night. I'd walk home, fall asleep, and then I'd have to set my alarm for 5 a.m. the next morning to catch a bus to the hospital. And then you're at the hospital all day until like 5.30 at night. You catch a bus back to uni, you have to go to the gym late because that's just when you have to train and then you have to walk home and then you have to eat dinner and all these sort of things. So one, compromised sleep is a huge one. Training at a time where it's not necessarily your ideal time to train and also just being highly stressed too and consuming foods at different points and everything without going into too much detail. I know that during that prep, I was actually really constipated and it really, really stressed me out. And it was really uncomfortable, but also I just had to accept that one, this is a choice. And also the reason why my scale weight is being reflected at a higher number each day is simply because I just haven't had a bowel motion because I'm not sleeping adequately at night and I'm really, really stressed and I'm running around and all this sort of stuff. And it's almost like I had to just accept that And then also I had to wait out for the weekend when I was like, okay, when I have a day off, I'm going to get a really good night's sleep. Everything's going to be in my routine. I'm going to go to the bathroom. The next day, I'm going to have my true scale weight reflected of what my actual tissue weight is, not just me with my body and constipated. So that was a bit of a spiel, but I think that's actually quite relevant for a lot of people, especially breaking up their Monday to Friday routine versus the weekend. So yeah, it's, it's frustrating. We all go through it at some point or another, but it's also important why you need to be kind of tracking your scale weight every single day and looking for those trends week to week, because there just might be a day or two during the week where you're like, okay, this is going to be a hell of a lot more reflective of my actual tissue weight. I just need to hold out. And, uh, yeah, having a bowel motion, you feel lighter on your feet and um, it makes everyone really happy. <laughs> mm. Everyone does it. <laughs> yeah, you hope so. 
yeah, exactly. And if you're not, then it's uh, it is an issue. But yes, it's a very common thing. So try to keep your stress levels low. Try to keep yourself in an ideal routine and uh, just have every single variable under your belt just managed for in terms of your food intake, your meal timing, hydration status, your fiber intake, you name it. And uh, hopefully things just keep clocking over and keep moving. If you would like to ask us a podcast question, make sure to be following our Instagram at The Bodybuilding Dietitians where we release regular, informative content on nutrition, training, and bodybuilding topics. We also ask for podcast questions on a regular basis. We'll see you there. This next one says, can you calorie cycle in a building phase? If anything, I almost think that calorie cycling or manipulating your energy intake on a daily basis is probably more appropriate for when people are in building phases compared to dieting phases, at least in absolute terms, how much they would be manipulating their daily energy intake. Mm. I think it's one of those answers where yes, you can, but do you need to? Mm -hmm. Like, is it really relevant for you? Well, I know that you calorie cycle in a building phase. Yeah. Calorie cycling, again, it's just a fancy way of saying Mm. a day to day, sometimes I consume a few more calories than other days. Yeah, so for example, reasons why you might want a calorie cycle is purely if you're more active on certain days and you need additional energy intake. So for example, for me, like I consume less calories on my rest days, I consume more calories on my training days. And if I had to split that up even further, I would consume more calories on my leg days, Mm. which I don't currently, but I do know that I certainly expend more energy on my leg days. So if you notice that you have a larger amount of energy expenditure on certain days or you know you have events coming up where let's say you go on a hike or a bike ride and you know you have expended more energies than usual and you want to st- stay consistently in a surplus then it totally makes sense to auto regulate that but i think some people think that calorie cycling and throwing all those variables aside calorie cycling alone will yield more results when it won't and it's mm. the same with weight loss most of the time as well mm-hmm. I think it just comes down to the principle of fuel for the work required. Mm. So if you're expending more energy, then even if you were eating intuitively, you would naturally have higher hunger signals on that day to eat a little bit more food. Or if you're a couch potato one day and you're pretty darn sedentary, you might not actually feel that hungry if, you know, if everything's stable in terms of like, body weight is normal and your relationship with food is normal, but it just comes down to fueling for the work required. But then I'm going to pose a question to you. So let's say that in a building phase, someone in absolute terms is actually manipulating their energy intake in larger degrees. So for example, Jack, can you give some numbers like on your training days, how different is your calorie intake relative to your rest days? Yeah. So it's about, four to 500 calories lower on Mm. a rest day. Yeah. And then for an average client of yours, let's say that they were entering into a dieting phase. Would you have their training and their rest days different by four to 500 calories? No. Yeah. So what's the reason for that? Why do we do that? Because we both do it. Mm. I think in a surplus, potentially because of neat, like Mm. the contrast is more significant. And I think ultimately uh, in a dieting phase, when we have a smaller gap, like either I'll keep things exactly the same every day in a dieting phase for a normal dieting phase, that is, or I will maybe stagger it slightly. So an extra 
25 to 50 grams of carbohydrates on a training day, but definitely not a big gap. And I think also the, the reason because of that is we sort of just accept that on a rest day, we just won't, we maybe just won't be in as much of a deficit. Mm. The other consideration with my rest days is like my, I'm just not as active as well. Like my step counts usually six to 8,000 as opposed to tw- 10 to 12,000. Mm. Yeah. I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense in that during a dieting phase, you're setting up someone's calories so that on a training day, they're in a larger deficit, but on a rest day, they are still in a very slight deficit as well. And then you have to think about, okay, the next day's training performance, because overall you've dropped someone's calories. Overall, a lot of those calories generally do come from carbohydrates. The next day's training performance, if you just slash someone's carbs and you're like, you know, you're consuming a hundred grams on, on a rest day, like they're going to have very little glycogen for their next training day. So Mm. it's not really necessary. I also think for just peace of mind as well, (laughs) because on a rest day too, or just day to day, if you're in a dieting phase, keeping food focus at bay, like keeping decision fatigue at bay, kind of almost just setting yourself up on a set plan in terms of meals, that's really good as well so that you don't have to go manipulating huge things day to day too. And also some people find that they're actually hungrier on rest days compared to training days because training days even though you're in a larger deficit on that day, a training bout, it takes up a few hours of your day. So you're a bit distracted during that time and acutely it can be a bit of an appetite suppressant. Plus we consume more caffeine usually on a training day. Caffeine's also appetite suppressing. But then on a rest day when you're like, man, I'd usually be at the gym for at least two and a half hours. And now, yeah, I'm still doing stuff, but just a little bit more time to kind of be thinking about food it's always nice to still be able to eat a little bit more on a rest day as well. So I guess Mm. there's a few answers for you, but in saying that sometimes you obviously do calorie cycle too, when you are in a deficit, but it's just dependent on the client. Mm. I think people might even unintentionally calorie, like you could get in the weeds here and say that by doing different amounts of exercise on different days, like your calorie cycling, in terms of how much of a surplus you're in. Mm. Even if you kept macros and calories exactly the same, you're still cycling in terms of yeah. how much of a surplus you're yeah. in. Yeah, energy expenditure cycling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me- metabolic cycling. How mm. about that? <laughs> okay, this next one, it says, can a meal plan approach produce greater results in the off season compared to not being on a meal plan in the off season, only on a meal plan, let's say, during prep? I think if someone is struggling with maybe adherence or they have poor nutritional literacy and maybe they are just starting in their fitness journey or they've never paid too much attention to nutrition, then a meal plan probably can help them initially. But it is ultimately a band-aid solution because they're only going to get better results if they follow the meal plan. Mm. So ideally, like you would... I mean, this is depending on the coach, of course, but maybe someone would start off on a meal plan and then develop the nutritional literacy themselves so that they don't have to be. But I think if you also look at some of the more top level athletes or bodybuilders per se, I know I'm relating this a lot to bodybuilders, but what's that uh, infographic we did a while ago? It's like following in uh, success leaves clues, essentially. Mm. And I think if you look at the top level people, like they might track macros on a daily basis, but they'll end up following a meal plan anyway. Like Mm. essentially their food choices day to day will pretty much be the same Mm -hmm. and it won't be very sporadic. And sure, that's going to differ for everyone. Like if someone has a family or if they have kids, but 
uh, yeah, like for example, I've eaten the same evening meal for literally like <laughs> two plus years straight. Mm-hmm. Like some slight variations, like maybe different toppings or uh, seasoning, but the essence of it has remained the same. Mm-hmm. And I know, I think Lawrence on, I know Lawrence will listen to this. He was, I think he's had probably had like cream of rice or something similar, or maybe it was cereal for, um, for yeah, years straight. Yeah. You can tell the people that are genuinely in this for the long haul and because they just absolutely love bodybuilding with all their heart and it is truly a lifestyle for them. If you don't see them going to two different ends of the extremes between their improvement seasons and their comp preps, they truly have developed a bodybuilding lifestyle for themselves. And there's not an enormous difference between improvement seasons and comp preps. If anything, there's not even that huge of a difference between their food selections. It's usually just portion sizes. And during the improvement season, I don't necessarily think that you have to follow a meal plan, but you're generally still following a pretty similar structure to your meal timings, your food choices. You have a very similar dietary pattern. So I think that that overall, that's going to lead you to the best results long-term if you're consistently creating a lifestyle out of this and you're forming those sort of bodybuilding habits that are going to serve you long-term. I think that's what's going to lead to the greatest results. Mm. Yeah, it's not yeah. an all-or-nothing approach. Yeah, for sure. And I don't feel like you need to be feel obliged to eat the same thing every day and follow a meal mm. plan in the off-season because you don't. Like, essentially, the key components of nutrition in an off season is like one being in a surplus for the majority of the time and controlling your body composition. So not letting body fat come up too high, uh, fueling for the work required, as we said earlier, consuming adequate protein, adequate quality of protein and distribution. And of course, actually having a good diet in general with Mm. sufficient nutrient quality and hitting the necessary food groups. And you can totally do that eating different foods every day, but it's more so that doesn't really appeal to me and it doesn't mm. i think once if you're if you have a really good relationship with food then you could you could do either mm. um and i think there is a case to be said that maybe eating the same thing every day isn't it's potentially not as nutritious as eating a much more diverse diet but again this is we're being more so specific to, to bodybuilding there's no way on earth i would tell a, a normal person hey follow a meal plan every day uh <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just, again, we're trying to be more specific to bodybuilding here. Yeah, I think it just comes down to whether you're in an improvement season or in a prep, you're probably eating the same number of times per day. So like, for example, you and I both eat four times per day at relatively the exact same times each day. That doesn't change depending on whether we're in a surplus or a deficit, that stays the same. And then hitting your essential micronutrient targets as well. And you just have to follow similar structures. So you know that, okay, within the entirety of the day, I know I'm going to be consuming at least 400 grams of vegetables and 300 grams of fruit. I'm going to be getting the majority of my carbohydrates from complex sources like whole grains. I'm going to be having a high biological value source of protein at each one of my meals. I'll try to get some red meat in there on a daily basis. I'll try to consume sufficient calcium. So once you tick all those nutritional boxes, you can find that like you're just going to gravitate towards certain meals and certain structures. And if you do have a healthy relationship with food, that doesn't bother you in the slightest. If anything, it's just like peace of mind. Mm. (laughs) Like you can give your actual cognition and attention to the things that really matter in life, like your career, like your family, like your friends, like your training and 
food, man. You're just not focused on it. You're just like, oh gosh, okay, it's 3.30. I know exactly how to make my meal in the most efficient way possible. I'm going to eat it. Then I'm going to get back to work. Like it, it shouldn't be taking up an enormous amount of your day. So it's almost an indicator to me that someone doesn't actually have the healthiest relationship with food if they're constantly changing their food sources or they're like, mm, I just didn't hit the spot. You know, I just want something different. I want something different. I'm, I, I understand flavor fatigue and all that, but I, I don't think that you need to be making like gourmet five-star meals, like completely changing mm. up things on a weekly basis. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think nutrition should be tailored to the individual. So it's difficult to blanket statement everything. But as that saying goes, success leaves clues. And sometimes people think they need to do certain things with nutrition. For example, like change up meals a lot and have everything being absolutely delicious in order to adhere to their diet in a weight loss phase, for example, when they they don't essentially. And, and often that's making things more difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need to follow a meal plan during your off season to get the best results, but you do need to have a structured dietary pattern that is pretty reflective as well of what a competition prep would be for you with, of course, a few manipulations here and there, but there really shouldn't be an enormous contrast if you want to be the best bodybuilder possible. Yeah. And having bodybuilded or trained now for 10 years or around about 10 years like nutrition honestly is the easy part at Mm. least for me like training is training so freaking hard man (laughs) so if like your if your training is way easier than your nutrition then that's something to kind of reflect on as Mm. well as like sure everyone should enjoy going to the gym if they bodybuild but more so in terms of the difficulty of the sessions themselves like Mm. Sometimes they get anxious for the session. Do I still come out of the gym enjoying it? Like, yes, like reflectively I can enjoy it. But in the session itself, I'm not always having a great time. Mm. So it's it's a bit of a sadistic sport sometimes. Yeah, I don't think I've ever eaten breakfast and been anxiety provoked. <laughs> but I, I mean, certainly... <laughs> sure, there are times when I have been anxiety to, to blend another meal. But like I'm definitely... <laughs> A special circumstance there. <laughs> That's a great point though, that nutrition is so fully in your control. And generally you can trust that if you are consuming a certain input, then you're going to get a certain result in terms of like, if I'm consuming a certain amount of food and my nutrient status is sound, if that has me in a calorie deficit, I'm going to be achieving my weight loss goals. Or if that has me in a calorie surplus, I'm going to be gaining weight. Like you can put your money on that, but no one actually talks about the gym in the sense of like, just that sense of hope. (laughs) When we walk out of the gym after a leg day, it's like, man, I, I hope fighting for that one extra rep on my lunges or my squats or my RDLs today. And basically everything was kind of matched compared to last week. I hope that helped me grow that one extra gram of muscle on my quad. Like, but it's still the sense of the unknown. Mm. (laughs) It's, there's a huge, there's a huge aspect of hope there, but that's why your reason why for actually going to the gym has to be greater than just developing your physique. You have to rely on, obviously, I love the structure. I love the discipline. I love those post-workout endorphins, that feeling of self-improvement, growing muscle is the cherry on top, but like Geez Louise, man, like we put a hell of a lot of effort into it. (laughs) It's kind of like showing up to work every single day, putting in your best effort, busting your butt, and you're not actually guaranteed an income. (laughs) 
<laughs> you might actually be working for free. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or you could actually just, you're basically working for like minimum, minimum wage, but you're like, I freaking love my job so much. I don't even care. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a bit, um, another perk of the gym though, is you do get the health benefits kind of regardless mm. of whether you grow muscle, which is nice. Do you have the goal of stepping on stage one day in the best shape of your life? And most importantly, want to enjoy the journey along the way? Or perhaps you're not a physique competitor but still want to take your health, strength, and body composition to the next level and learn more about training and nutrition? If this sounds like you, then please don't hesitate to read about our coaching services in the links below. We would love to help you achieve your goals. Enjoy the rest of the show. That's the thing that I sort of look on favorably with natural bodybuilding too, is like, it's not the healthiest sport overall, but and this would this is something that I'd actually be very interested to assess like over the decades like as as I sort of see other natural bodybuilders who are older than me like in their 40s and 50s mm. continue to age but if someone competes like in 10 years they might compete like three or four times they're essentially undergoing very deliberate calorie restriction where they undergo um, essentially modified fasting because mm-hmm. they're they're doing intentional deficits. Autophagy. Yeah, like are they are they actually increasing their longevity by doing that? Because mm. some people argue, of course, it's incredibly stressful. You're killing yourself because your uh, your hormones are being tanked, etc. But who knows? Like maybe bodybuilders will actually live the mm. longest. Natural bodybuilders, that is. And uh, combined, of course, with the style of training that we do, like mm. we know that it improves our bone mineral density and maintains our bone mineral density as we grow older. And it has a wealth of other, like even cardiovascular benefits as well. Reduces sarcopenia. <laughs> <laughs> so we can maintain our muscle mass as we mm. age too. And, but that's the thing too, as people age, the reason why their actual quality of life declines is because they're more susceptible to falls and fractures because they're weaker. They don't have that sense of independence because they're just not as strong. Mm. But you and I, we're in our mid twenties right now. We haven't drunk a drop of alcohol in probably going on what seven years or so since like uni days at a pub crawl (laughs) but we've been exercising ever since then I don't think we've ever missed a protein feeding we lift weights we sleep well at night (laughs) and we're in this for the long haul and we're getting regular blood work done and yeah every few years or so we do a pretty freaking extreme diet and sometimes our hormones maybe get a little bit tanked acutely (laughs) but we always bounce back well from that but you have to think about that long term when you and I in our 80s or our 90s are we still going to be thriving independently with good bone mineral density you know like just good cardiovascular fitness overall just a really good health status which is going to Mm. contribute to our overall quality of life compared to the average individual well yeah obviously compared to the average but i mean more so even compared to maybe other people who are just in quotation marks like health conscious Mm. like they go to the, they might be active and they might eat well. Mm. Again, it's going to be interesting. But I mean, the one thing outside of our control is, of course, genetics. Like we can't, if we're predisposed to certain like high cholesterol or yes, that's still within our control, but it's it's a genetic trait that mm. makes it more difficult. Or if we're predisposed to a high risk of certain cancer, like um, prostate cancer or breast cancer, like mm. those are unfortunately things we can't control as mm. well. But and I guess the other consideration with bodybuilding too, natural bodybuilding is like we do push our body weight up in the off season. Mm-hmm. And But at the same time, I would say even then compared to the average person out there in the community, 
it's still definitely not to those levels of extremes. Like sure, your BMI is high, but because you have a lot of muscle mass on you, Mm. but I don't think that you or I, either of us push our level of body fat to an unhealthy position. Yeah, no, but like we do consume more foods with more AGIs Mm -hmm. and higher refined content of our carbohydrates and that sort of stuff. So potentially more oxidative stress as a result of consuming those carbohydrates, which I know some people Mm -hmm. still in the industry, like if I had to objectively say like refined versus whole grains, carbohydrates, yeah, whole grain carbohydrates, (laughs) of course they're better. Like, and objectively for your health, it's probably better to only have that source Mm -hmm. of carbohydrates. But again, it's But if you have good insulin sensitivity and you're always exercising and you're moving and those portion of more refined carbohydrates are just a certain percentage of your daily calorie intake because your energy requirements are so high. So your total actual surplus is not extreme. Mm. But I mean, even from, I know I won't mention who they are, but we had a talk on on the holiday with someone who is uh, invested in cancer research and something that we learned was potentially amino acids in whey protein are more readily used for cancer growth. Mm. So again, I'm not sure that was surprising to me because I thought that all amino acids would be readily available once they're broken down and Mm -hmm. absorbed. So again, that's another interesting part to speculate on. Mm -hmm. God damn, all all those freaking EAAs and BCAs, people (laughs) just drink till the cows come home. And whey protein powder. And whey protein powder, activating that freaking mTOR, man. Yeah. I think it's super interesting. <laughs> I I almost forget what the question was, but I know that yeah. we've definitely we've gone down a trail for sure. But I think we're coming up to the end of this podcast. And actually, finally, sorry. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Some people would also say, "Yeah, you're doing all this bodybuilding stuff, and it's potentially make you going to make you live longer. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But again, you're losing out on life gains by bodybuilding, which again." Of course, I don't agree with. Otherwise, I wouldn't bodybuild. But I think always we're living be... our best lives over here. I know. Of course, that's what you're going to say, though. <laughs> you're not going to say otherwise. But some people would say bodybuilding, you're kind of wasting the best years of your life. Like all you do is train and eat and diet and you're missing out on all these experiences. So mm. as you can tell, I just like to play devil's advocate. I like to examine both sides of, of yeah. the argument. I don't know. I'm pretty happy every day of the week, not miserable Monday to Friday, and then just like moderately happy on Saturdays and Sundays. So mm. there you go. <laughs> Life's pretty good on this end of the mic. All right, Jack, one thing that you learned this week. I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about this and something that I learned, or at least it was my first experience doing so, I hired a mobile mechanic. Because in the past, whenever I've had to get my car serviced, we've actually lived a lot closer to someone who will service cars. And I can literally just drive there, drop off my car, walk back to our house, and then I can walk back and pick up my car later. Not necessarily the case right now. And I didn't want to bother you by like us having to take two trips in the car and all that jazz. But there are mobile mechanics out there. And compared to what I've actually paid in the past for previous mechanics, these guys were even less expensive and also they just came right to me. So I live in Brisbane and I'm going to give a huge shout out to the company called My wow, Car. Get, like inundated with people. <laughs> 
yeah, thank me later. But seriously, the company called My Car. They were so awesome in coming to our house. Your car or my car? (laughs) Our car. No, the company is called... Well, actually, the Jimny is my car. The Tesla is your car. But they came to our house and they serviced my car. And it was so easy. And yeah, I just have to give them a humongous shout out. And uh, if you want literally cheaper mechanics and also like... You don't have to go anywhere. They come exactly so to you. So my car serviced your car. Yeah. My car serviced my Jimny. <laughs> and uh, they were spectacular. And the good thing is my Jimny's in uh, Top Nick. So that's all good. But that's what I learned this week. Mobile mechanics. Yeah. Look mm. them up. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the benefits of a Tesla is like it's every two year service. Yeah. Maybe that's why they were also saying that my car is like, they're making a joke. They're like, you hardly drive. <laughs> like the kilometers are pretty low. And uh, yeah, that's probably because we are doing a lot more kilometers now in the Tesla because mm. we have solar panels as well. And it's basically free, baby. Yeah, not quite. And better for better price. for the environment. Even though the Jimny does have a very small engine, it's like a 1.3 liter engine. Although and people are going crazy now about the lithium batteries. Like, oh, you're not actually saving the planet by buying a Tesla because they got to do something with the batteries oh, afterwards. give me a break. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> I know, you can never win these days. <laughs> so what you going to do, man? Like yeah. tra- transport, it's the reason why the world keeps moving. Mm. So what did you learn? Yeah, so I learned that you can use the same antibiotic ointment on a dog's paw then as on a human paw, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Boston and I are sharing the same antibiotics on our paws right now. Yeah. <laughs> we both went for a walk on the beach and uh, got a scrape on a shell. And yeah, we're both um, having to be patched up by Jack. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, I just called up the vet and said, oh, can Mupirocin, which is an antibiotic ointment, can it be used uh, with dogs so it just saved me from going to the vet and buying another one so mm. that was handy yeah yeah which makes sense they're both we're both um not humans but we're both biological things mm-hmm. but yeah boston got like this gnarly little cut quite deep on his paw pad and mm. uh, like it almost surprises me i'm like how has this not happened before in the sense of like you know dogs you have to think about their feet like yeah maybe hobbits think that they've got the most resilient feet in the world but like you got to give it to dogs like they're freaking running around wild on these things and it's almost amazing that they don't get cut more often yeah it is Mm. Mm. yeah but either way he's being patched up right now by uh by us every single night (laughs) it's uh it's quite cute we tried to put like a sock on him because he keeps licking at the bandage so we tried to put this one of my long funky socks on him somehow the dude just got right out of it yeah well a single step and he got out of it (laughs) (laughs) oh man oh well but at least we tried Mm. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.